Good morning. All right, this morning we are beginning a new series on what the Bible has to say about money. The plan is for this to run about seven weeks long or so, so today we'll preach on this topic and then we'll talk about it for the next six Sundays if the Lord wills. Um, and this should be a very practical series, a very helpful series, since, it, since I would say probably nearly everyone in this room makes some kind of decision about money every single day of your life. So this should be very good. However, I do want to begin with a disclaimer, because there are people who say, I don't like it when the preacher talks about money. Have you met the people? Yes. Some of you are those people, Okay. And, and I know that, I mean, there's some of you that said, well, I come to this church because I went to the, my, my last church, that's all they ever do is talk about money. Or some of you have a story of, well, my friend invited me to church and I kept telling them no, because I know that all they want is your money and that's all, you know, or, or whatever it may be. And so I just wanted you to know this whole feeling of, I don't like it when the preacher talks about money. I, I wanted to start off by saying, I am aware of the concern and I also wanted to um, calm your fears, okay? I think that when people say, I don't like it when the preacher talks about money, I don't think they mean that literally. I don't think they mean, I don't like it when preachers use the word money, right? When churches address topics like poverty and greed and contentment and financial stress and planning for the future and showing compassion on the poor and getting out of debt, like all of those are money-related topics. And I don't know anyone that has a problem with the church addressing them. No, in fact, when people say, I don't like it when the pastor talks about money, I think what they really mean is, I don't like it when the pastor fundraises on Sunday morning, right? That's what they actually mean. So, um, I, 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 and, and, the, and the reason they mean that could be, who knows all, I mean, if this, this probably goes back into like things that they've experienced before they ever showed up to wherever they are now, now that they're saying, I don't like it when the preacher talks about money. It could be that they're thinking back on manipulative sermons. It could be that they're thinking out back on some situation where like some church got way off track as they were all concerned about raising funds for some particular project and there were thermometers all over the church and like red, let's add a little more red until the project could get finished and it just seemed like everybody was obsessed with that and they have all these feelings when someone, you know, when they walk in now and so um, I don't think that those people are actually opposed to the topic being discussed at all. They're just concerned about that happening again. And so, I wanted to begin this series by letting you know this is not going to be seven weeks of fundraising, okay? That's not what's happening. I just want to talk about what the Bible says about money, just like we talk about what the Bible says about all sorts of topics, and we have done that for 11 years now. Um, right now, my plan is for one of the seven weeks of this series to be about the topic of church giving, like giving to a church, one of the seven weeks, and the other six topics to be about like six other things that the Bible says as we're trying to understand what the Bible says about money. And honestly, if you cannot even handle one sermon on church giving, if you go, even that is, is too much, Pastor. I will just let you know that sermon will be on May 15th. You can skip if you must. <laughs> All right? I feel like I could not do anything more. All right? So... With all of that out of the way, can I preach on money now? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Okay, so um, today what I want to do is I want to start off this sermon by um, defining our terms. Like, what are we even talking about when we talk about money, okay? And so I think the thing that probably most of us think about most of the time when we use the word money or when we talk about money is something that is not even actually a commodity of its own, but it's something that merely represents another commodity. 
The thing that we call money really represents another thing, and it's the other thing that we're actually interested in, not the money. You realize that, right? When I say money represents another commodity, I mean, and I guess I'll keep it general, money most of the time for us represents stuff. The reason that we want these is typically because we are able to trade them for the stuff we actually want. So if you were to take, let's, I have, these are some money I took out of my wallet earlier this week. This is $15, $10 bill and a $5 bill. If I were to say, um, who here is interested in these? If I was just going to give it out for free, does anybody want this? Okay. Yes. So I figured there'd be people that would raise their hand. I'm not giving it to you. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I figured there would be people that would say yes. But here's the thing. The reason why you would say yes is not because you actually want green pieces of paper, right? Because if I had two other green pieces of paper here that are roughly the same, you know, the same shade of green and the same size and said, who wants these, there'd be a lot less hands that go up, right? Most of us wouldn't want green paper. We want these particular green papers. And the reason why is because these are something that we can trade for, and the reason why you would want these, there isn't, sir, sir, why you picked up, you said, yeah, I'll take them, is because you can trade this for $15 worth of hamburgers, french fries, milkshakes, whatever it is that you're into, okay? That's, that's what money is. Money is really a representative of our stuff, and I think that that is something that's important to understand, especially as we go into a series in the Bible about money. So this, that if we just think all of the verses that are about money in the Bible are about cash, we're going to miss out on some things, because the Bible treats all of this like it's your, your, your possessions, your wealth, okay? So, so money is not just cash. Money refers to the stuff of this life, specifically the things that we want and the things that we trade to get the things that we want. There is another thing that money represents, and so I'll add that in here because some people will point this out. Money is a representative of stuff, but sometimes money is a representative of something else. Money is a representative of time, okay? And this is supposed to be a clock. Um, money is a representative of time. That is, you can, there are many of you in this room who give some of your time in order to get these, right? In fact, I would guess that the majority of people in this room probably give about 40 hours of their time each week in order and ex kind of exchange it to get these, right? And in some cases, you would say, yeah, it's, it is. I do give them 40 hours of my week, but I don't simply give them 40 hours of my week. I also like do stuff, like there's, it's not just my time that they get, but they get my work, my energy, my effort. In some cases, they get my abilities, my special abilities. And so I'm putting a hand there and just combining these two thoughts, okay? So the hand is supposed to represent like labor, effort, ability. That some of you, you, you sell 40 hours of your week, but not really just 40 hours, you sell 40 like skilled hours, right? That the reason that somebody's willing to pay you something that they're not willing to pay somebody else is because you have some sort of ability that you can, you can do something, you can accomplish something that not everyone else will accomplish, so they pay you and not someone else. So we've got skills and abilities and effort and energy and all that and the time it takes to do it, and then we trade that for money. And then we turn around and we trade that for stuff. And then in some cases, we turn around, we, we, we take our time and our ability and we trade it for money, and then we turn around and we trade that money for someone else's time and energy. And so when you take the thing that you call your money and you say, you go to the store and you buy a TV with it, okay, then what are you doing? What you're doing is you're exchanging money for stuff. And what you have at the end of that transaction is the thing you bought. There's a TV. That's what you have to show for the transaction. But when you earn your money and then you hire someone to mow your lawn, 
well, what do you have to show for it, right? I'm giving up money, but what am I getting in return? I'm not, I, don't have any, I don't have anything, right? In fact, I have less things. There's actually less grass than was there. So why in the world am I giving money to someone and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm owning less things at the end of it? Because you're trading that money for what? Time, right? That's an hour you don't have to go do it. So money represents stuff and sometimes time and ability and we trade these things around and sometimes we use this to buy this in order to get this stuff which means this was just an intermediary really because we're really using this to get this but I just wanted to point out this stuff's equivalent right these things are all connected that the reason we want this is not because we really want this but because it's connected to these other things that are the stuff of life you following me that's very important so uh, let's go one level deeper. Let's talk a little bit more about how is, the, how is it that money works and how has it worked throughout history. So let me give you a, a brief history of money. We'll start with this way. Once upon a time, there was no money. Did you know this? Once upon a time, this wasn't here. This side of the equation was not here. There, were no, there was no cash. There was no currency. Okay? This existed, though. Okay? There was stuff. There was time. There was people doing things. And people were trading all around in here. But there was no cash. There was no currency. There was once upon a time when there was no money. So if you go back, and I don't remember when this was exactly. I say remember, like I was there. I mean, I don't know, like, historically when they started, like, you know, making coins and stuff like that. But I'll just go from what I know of biblical history. Go back about 6,000 years, and you have a time period with no money, as best as I understand it. You, you go back about 6,000 years in human history, and you don't have that. In fact, let me show you why I think that. If you, have the, if you have your Bible with you, you can go to the book of Job. I want to read to you the first three verses of the book of Job so that you can see like a different kind of money culture than the one that we live in. So Job is uh, the oldest book in the Bible. I'm pretty sure, like, I don't know, I think every scholar believes that. Like Job, when it comes to biblical literature, Job is the most ancient literature that we have. And this is what it says during the time period of Job. Job lived maybe right around the time of Abraham, perhaps around 6,000 years ago. And here he is, Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1 says this. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. Okay, that was just all context. Now I want to read you the sentence I really want to read you, which is the third sentence of Job. It says, His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. What's the purpose of that verse? In the book of Job, it's to say this guy was rich. But I want you to notice this guy had zero dollars, right? When it talks about how rich he is, it says that he has 3,000, or no, sorry, 7,000 of these. And so I'm going to put this on this side, okay? This is supposed to be a sheep, okay? And he's happy, okay? Now... I put him on this side of the equation, because why? Well, because in this particular situation, this sheep is the equivalent of money, right? That there was a point in history where the way that they measured how wealthy you were, like when you look at Job chapter 1, verse 3, they do not say Job is a millionaire. They do not say Job is a billionaire. They say he had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, right? That's, that's what he had. That's how we know he was wealthy. Because at this point, they're measuring things in livestock. So if you go back, like I said, right around 6,000 years ago, maybe give or take a few hundred years, and what you have in most of the world, as best as I understand it, is what is called a barter economy. Barter economy in the history of the world. So this is when you only have this side of the equation, and there's nothing over here. 
Okay, you live in a world where, and barter is a word that means trade, you live in an economy where the way that people get what they need is they're figuring out on their own, and in many cases they're having to trade things that they have for things that other people have. Or they might trade their time, or they might trade their abilities, but they're trading these things directly. So, in a barter economy, you maybe would have a guy who owns an olive grove, and a guy who has a herd of sheep, and the guy who has the olive grove goes to the guy who has the sheep and says, hey, I need wool for my family so that we're, you know, not naked and so that we are like, we can get through winter time or whatever it is. Can I get some wool from you? And the sheep guy says, sure, I'll give you some wool. I need some olive oil for us to do our cooking. Okay, so then the olive guy gives olive oil to the sheep guy who gives him wool. They trade, and that's a barter economy. Now, the way I said it sounds great, but a barter economy is very inefficient and difficult to live in. Okay, because in the illustration I picked, I just happened to make the, the olive guy and the sheep guy live next to each other and they each had something the other one wants. But it's not always that simple. In a barter economy, and the reason why eventually money was invented is because it's difficult to always match up the people and make sure the people have the amount of stuff that, 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 that's the right amount of stuff and be able to trade with people to have the amount of stuff they have. And so if olive guy goes to sheep guy and says, I want some wool, and sheep guy goes, I don't need any olive oil, now you have a problem, right? Because it's not the same thing as money. Well, olive oil is all I have. You don't accept that? No, I don't. I, 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 I'm fine with cooking. I don't need any olive oil. So now olive guy is going to go to sheep guy and go, well, what is it that you need? Because I need a, a wool or a, a sheep or something. And sheep guy might go, well, you know what I really need? I need a camel. Oh, now olive guy has to do what? He's got to go find a guy with a camel. No. He has to go find a guy with a camel who needs olive oil. The whole thing is difficult. And so everyone's trying to survive, and it's, people are dying right and left, and it's just, it was a tough time, okay? <laughs> Eventually, money was invented, okay? And as far as I know, um, I think coins were probably the first thing that we would consider to be money. And I know by the time you get to the time period of the New Testament, you have coins. The Roman Empire minted coins. Jesus talks about coins in the Gospels. Jesus used coins. Eventually, we move from coins to these bills. In fact, let me... And, and so when we switched from coins to these, this was fantastic because, well, first of all, these are a lot more mobile. It's a lot easier to move these around and put these in your pocket and not have to have a big bag of, like, coins. And so bills were a lot better when they were invented, when we moved from coins to bills. But even these became, I guess, a little bit inconvenient. I would guess most of you in this room don't even use these very often anymore, right? When I was a kid, we used these all the time. I don't think you guys, most of you probably don't even use these, right? We moved on. So what did we move on to? We went from coins to bills, and then we went bills. What was the next step after bills? It was, well, there was something before cards. It was this. Do you remember this? We all forgot this even happened. Remember the 80s and 90s? This is incredible. So some of you haven't seen one of these for 10 years. Some of you are young enough, you've never seen one of these in your life. You're going, what is that ancient document, sir? So let me explain how these work. They were fantastic for, for, for their time. So if you wanted to go buy a big stuff, if you wanted to buy something that costs a lot of dollars and you wanted to buy a bunch of stuff, you didn't have to, once these were invented, if you went to the car dealership because you wanted to buy a car or a, you know, a truck or something like that, you didn't have to have a suitcase filled with dollar bills in order to buy the truck. You could write some giant number over here, you could give it to them, and then money would be transferred from your bank to their bank. Oh, it was fantastic while it lasted. And then we came up with something 
better, right? We moved on to these. And probably, I would guess most everyone in this room probably uses these on a fairly regular basis. You take one of these and you stick it in to the machine with a little chip or you slide if you're going to someplace really old or uh, you, you tap it, you tap it on your gas station thing or you tap it at the thing at Publix and it takes numbers from your bank and transfers it over to their bank. And this is how most of us are trading things and purchasing things now. And some of you don't even use this as much anymore, right? It's transitioning to one of these. Right? So now we're taking this and we're tapping this at the gas station or at Publix and we're getting numbers that are on our phone out there and wherever and they're shooting off to somebody else's something. Right? And the numbers are all shooting around and that's how the money is being moved. Now the reason I bring all this up is I just want you to realize <clears throat> all of that stuff, coins, dollars, checks, cards, phones that transfer things, even when you have a friend, you know, let's, let's say you have a friend and you owe them $15, okay, and you don't have these bills. What do you do now? Well, you use Venmo or Zelle or whatever it is and use it with your phone. But it's the same thing. I guess what I'm saying is the principle is the same regardless of what the medium is. And so if it's helpful for you to imagine like a phone drawn on this side of the equation or a credit card drawn over here, okay, because you're going, I just, I just don't remember this. Okay, that's fine. You can draw in your mind, you can draw a phone over here or whatever you want, but I'm trying to point out it's the same thing. Whatever the median is, these are the things that we trade with, and this is actually the stuff of life. And you could trade, with, you trade, you use these things in order to move these things around. And so when we're talking about money, we're talking about all of this. I think, I think to this day, I think you can buy a sheep on a credit card. Like, you could do it this afternoon, I believe. <laughs> so all of these things, though, are equivalent. They're all connected. So it doesn't matter what the medium is. The point is, when we're talking about our money, whether we're talking about money that we use with a credit card or money that we use with cash, and whether we're talking about when I hired someone to mow my lawn or whether we're talking about I bought a TV or a sheep, the point is... These things are equivalent. The reason this matters is because it's representative of this, and this is really the stuff we're talking about. And when we look at what the Bible has to say about money, we probably can't just think to ourselves that God's talking about this. We need to realize that God is talking about everything that he's given us. If we're going to do a series on our possessions, then we need to know it's talking about all of our stuff. We can't think, well, this isn't money. Only this is money. That's not going to help us if we're going to try to understand what the Bible says, because all of this is connected. Now, you might say, okay, well, that was good, Mario, I guess, but it was kind of basic. I think I, I think I knew most of that. Why would you take time to explain to us, like, real basic economics? And here's my answer to that. Um, because there will be times in this series, and there will be times in your life, when you will come across Bible verses that talk about things that if you don't understand this connection right here, you're not going to understand what the Bible verse is about. You're going to read a Bible verse about goats, some of you, and, and I think we're going to do it in this series. I hope to. I can't wait to get to the goat verse. We're, in this series, we're going to read a verse about goats, and in your life, there will come a day, if you keep reading your Bible, you will read a verse about goats, and you will go, what does that have to do with my life? And I hope you will remember back to this day and go, oh, that verse has something to do with my life. Like, if there is a Bible verse that says, keep watch over your flocks and herds, which, by the way, it is a Bible verse. That's in Proverbs. Keep watch over your flocks and herds. What are you supposed to do with that verse? And I feel like if you don't understand this, you're going to have a problem because there are going to be some of you that are going to read the verse that says, keep watch over your flocks and herds, and you're going to go, well, I don't have those. That verse doesn't apply to me. Then there may be others of you that go, well, honey, we got to be good Christians. Let's go buy a goat, right? Because the, the Bible says, watch over your flocks and herds. We've got we to go buy goats. No, neither of those are the way that you're going to apply that verse. You want to know how watch over your flocks and herds applies to your life? Be careful with your money. 
That's what that verse is saying. Be careful with your money. That's what watch over your flocks and herds means. We need to know that, and that's why we need to know all this. Another reason why I wanted to teach you all this is because I think that American Christians tend to think that God only cares about their unspent money. God cares about this, okay? He's not so concerned about what I do with this. He's not concerned about this side. He's really concerned about cash. But if cash is just representative of all these things, it would mean that God cares about all of that. And so let me give you an example of what I mean by how I think American Christians think God cares about this and nothing else. We tend to think about our unspent money as the thing God cares about. Imagine a Christian who, this could be really any human, but let's make it a Christian. Um, Let's imagine that you're a Christian and you bought, you go to the store and you buy a dining room table, okay, or a kitchen table. In fact, I would guess probably most everyone in this room at some point has done this, right? You went to a furniture store and you bought a table for your kitchen, you bought a table for your dining room, and there you put it. And then imagine that Christian goes to church the following Sunday, and the pastor says, honor the Lord with your wealth. I think most of the time that Christian is going to think, I guess I got to write a check. I guess I need to give more of these. And most of the time, I don't think that Christian is going to think to themselves, how can I use the table for God? Honor the Lord with your wealth. That's what the pastor said. And we're all going to go like, all right, let me check my bank account. And we're not going to ask ourselves, how can I use the kitchen table that I just exchanged these for? How can I use that possession for God's will? And so this idea that God only cares about cash, and once you transfer it to something else, he doesn't care about it anymore, that idea has got to go, okay? So that's why I start by defining the term money, because I think that will serve us very well in understanding what it is that God's will is for us. So with all of that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 12. This will be like our first real passage for this morning. Job was just an illustration of how camels can be money, but here's like going to be some real teaching here. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 13, and I'll just explain it as I go along, but this is a teaching of Jesus. So here we go. Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this is interesting. Jesus is teaching a group of people, right? There's a crowd of people there. If I remember right from earlier in the chapter, I think there was like maybe thousands of people that were there. So huge crowd. And Jesus is teaching. And from the crowd, someone speaks. I'm guessing, I mean, maybe he interrupted Jesus, but I'm guessing maybe there was like a lull in the conversation and somebody said, I've got a concern. Okay. And so there was a guy from the crowd that calls out and he says, teacher, that's Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The fact that he's telling Jesus to talk to the brother makes me think the brother's probably also standing there. Okay. So this guy's there with his brother. And he says, I got a concern. I got a thing I want to talk to you about, Jesus. My brother is, is being greedy. He is not, we're, we're, having a, we're having a dispute about who's going to get da- dad's stuff. We don't know the whole story, but it can, as best as I can tell, this guy has at least one sibling, and probably his father just died. And so they have been arguing over who gets which of dad's things. Some of you in this room have been in that exact fight before, Right? You had siblings and family members, and you are, like, there was argument about who gets their stuff after they died. So that goes back a long time. These people are arguing about that. Who's going to get which stuff? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's trying to take all of dad's stuff or whatever the story was. And Jesus responds to that guy, verse 14. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, it's interesting that Jesus' first response was to not get involved. 
The guy says, hey, tell my brother he needs to stop being greedy and tell him to give me money that, that dad left and blah, 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 blah. And Jesus at first says, why am I the one to settle this dispute? Why should I be the judge? Why, why, who, who says I'm the arbitrator that should help you figure out this squabble? And so in one sense, Jesus does not get involved in their fight. He does not get in, settle their squabble. But he also doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, who, who appoint me judge or arbitrator of you and walk off? No, look at the next thing he says, verse 15. He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So the guy says, Jesus, I'm having trouble with my brother and dad's stuff. And at first, Jesus says, I'm not the one that's going to settle this argument for you. But I do have something to tell you. Watch out for greed. So he doesn't just say, I'm not going to get involved. He, t- he gives very important advice. Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. He says to these two brothers, you're going to have to figure this out, but, but let me tell you what you need to know as you figure it out. Your life is not defined by how many of these you have. As you try to figure out what you're doing, figure out what you're going to do with your brother. But here's the thing. Watch out. Your life is not simply the abundance of this. That's not how life is meant to be lived. Life is a lot more than just how much stuff do you have. And the decision that you're trying to figure out right now is a lot more than who gets what. And the fact that he says to watch out and be on guard against all greed, I think what that implies is, and I'm assuming he said this purposely so that all the people that were listening would realize like, ooh, and when I'm ever in a similar situation, I need to remember this. We need to watch out for greed. We must have, the fact that Jesus tells us to watch out for it, I think implies that we have a tendency to misprioritize wealth. We have a tendency to overemphasize possessions. We have a tendency, as human beings, we have a tendency to love money. And Jesus says, watch out for that. Jesus says, watch out for greed. And as you know, greed can negatively affect everything. Greed can negatively affect marriages. I'm sure there are thousands of marriages that have ended because of a financial dispute and arguing about money. Greed can negatively affect governments. We hear stories all the time of government corruption that's revolving around money and who gets what money or who gets what kickback or whatever it is. Greed can negatively affect businesses. Greed can negatively affect um, friendships. Greed can negatively affect families. That's what's happening in this particular story. Two, Two brothers fighting over their dad's stuff. Greed can negatively affect churches. Greed can negatively affect individual spiritual lives. Greed can destroy your life here on earth. And greed can destroy your whole eternity. And ultimately, you need to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and he will save you from greed. He is the only one who can save you from greed. And so all of this is a very important topic. Jesus brings this up or actually, the brother brings this up, and Jesus addresses it. And in other occasions, Jesus talks about this topic, and it's very important for us to understand what is it the Bible says about money and how we relate to our possessions and our wealth. So with all of that as an introduction to this series, now I want to go ahead and give you the two points for this morning. Like, this is the two points of my sermon. All right, intro to the series, done. Now the sermon begins, but I'll be brief. Two points that I want to give you, and these two points are... I believe, foundational points 
that all of the other weeks in this series will rest upon. Point number one is this. You don't actually own anything. Go ahead and write it down. You don't actually own anything. In one sense, there, there, is, a, there is a sense in which you don't actually own anything. And the reason I say there's a sense in which you don't own anything is because there is also a sense in which you do own things. Okay? I think that the Bible can talk about one topic from multiple angles. And so sometimes you say, ah, this is true in this sense, and this is not true in this sense. So I think there, in one sense you don't own anything. I think in another sense you do own things. Let me start with explaining the sense in which you do own things. That one will be easier. There is a sense in which God's Word recognizes that you own things. This is implied in commands like, thou shalt not steal, right? The fact that the Bible says thou shalt not steal means what? Well, it means there are some things that are mine that you're not supposed to take from me, and there are things that are yours that I'm not supposed to take from you. I have an obligation to not take your stuff because it's yours. You have an obligation to not take my stuff because it's mine. And that only could be true if we own stuff, right? There are things that are mine and things that are yours. There's a collection of things I'm not supposed to take without your permission. There's a collection of things I have that you're not supposed to take without my, without my permission. Okay, so there's a sense in which we own things. But there's another sense in which we don't really own anything, at least, at least not long term. And for that, I want to show you the next thing that Jesus said. So the very next verse, after the verse where he tells the brothers, watch out and be on guard for greed, okay? The next thing he says is this. This is verse 16 of Luke chapter 12. Then he told them a parable. So he just said, be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, and this is important to understand, he is not changing the topic. He is changing the method of how he's teaching, but he's not changing the topic. He's still on the topic of greed at this point. But instead of talking directly about greed, he is now just about to, he's about to tell a story about greed. Here's the story. A rich man's land was very productive. You can tell that this is a story about money just the way he begins it, right? A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? Now, you got to remember, this is the brothers just said, invite, divide the inheritance with me. He said, watch out for greed, and then this is the story he tells. The landowner, the rich man farmer says, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I have so many crops. Verse 18, I will do this, he said, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a very powerful story. And so let me just go ahead and just talk to you about it. First of all, in this story, I want you to notice that it matches with what we have already talked about, okay? The riches that are in this story are not dollars, are they? What are they in this story? Okay, crops, crops, grain. At one point, it says he had a bunch of crops. Later on, he says, I'm looking for a place to store my grain, all right? I don't have any space to draw it. I don't even know how to draw grain, okay? But in this story, grain, crops equals money. This guy is rich because he has a whole bunch of crops, and, and, and then this particular year, he gets really rich because he gets a whole bunch of crops. So many crops that the barns that he has can't fit all the crops in it, and he's got to tear down and build bigger barns. This is like a guy who's got so much money, he's run out of like banks to hold all the money in. So what's the problem here? The problem is he allocates all of his money to himself. 
He says, what am I going to do with all of this money I have? I'm going to use it all for me. He allocates his money to himself. And it's very obvious that that's the problem because if you look at how Jesus, like the commentary he makes about the parable after the parable's done, right? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What was the problem? The problem is the man stored up treasures for himself instead of being rich toward God. Well, what's the big deal here? And, and this is, if you look at verse 20, you can really see what the issue is. God shows up in this parable. The farmer's there, and he's putting his, his crops into the new barns, and then God shows up and talks to him. And I don't know how often you read Jesus' parables, but this sticks out to me as an unusual one, okay? God is a character in the parable. Like, I don't even, I can't think of another parable where God shows up and talks to one of the characters. Jesus doesn't usually tell parables like this. I can't think of another one. Whenever Jesus tells a parable and God is one of the characters in the parable, Jesus usually disguises him like he does with all of his parables. Like most of his parables are analogies. They're metaphors. So if God's in the parable, God is like the landowner or he's the farmer or he's the king or he's the, um, the, the father, like the story of the prodigal son, right? There's the father and the prodigal son runs away and comes back, right? But he doesn't come back to God. He comes back to his father. But in this story, Jesus just has God show up in the parable and start talking. And he calls the guy what? A fool. So if God shows up in a parable and calls the only character in it a fool, he's not the hero of the story. Why is he a fool? Why is this guy who allocated his stuff on this earth for himself, why is he a fool? Look what it says. This, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God says, here's why you're a fool. You're about to die. I'm taking you out tonight, right? This night will be demanded. This time tomorrow, you won't be alive anymore. This time tomorrow, you won't own anything. This whole allocate it all for yourself was a terrible idea because guess what? None of this will belong to you tomorrow at this time. And you might hear that story and go, oh, well, that stinks for that guy. But you have something in common with that guy. You are also going to die one day. You're going to die, and the day after you die, everything that you right now call yours will belong to someone else, and they're going to call it theirs. They're going to call your stuff theirs the day after you die. Isn't that disappointing? And then that guy or girl, whoever she is, okay, that person is, is not, is not going to have it for very long because they are also going to die. And all the stuff that was theirs and all the stuff that was yours that lasts is going to get passed on to someone else, and that person's going to call it theirs. And whatever lasts is going to pass on to another person, a person that you've probably never met, and that person is going to call it theirs for a little while. And all the while, nobody gets to keep any of this stuff permanently because death makes everything not permanent. Death makes everything temporary. Therefore, money is temporary. Therefore, nobody really owns anything for any length of time. It's almost like we're renting everything, right? It's all, it's all short-term when we realize there is something beyond this life. One of the best illustrations that I've heard of this is um, there's a guy named John Ortberg. He's a pastor in California, and he tells the story about when he was a little boy, and he had a grandmother who would play Monopoly with him. And she was apparently like a hardcore grandmother who would never let him win. Like, she was an adult and he was a kid, so obviously she had an advantage. So she would play as hard as she could and she would beat him every single time. And the reason that she beat him every single time was because she wanted one day when he really figured out the game and won fair and square, 
he, that she wanted him to be happy that like he really won, right? And she didn't let him win, right? Some of you are like that, right? Mm-hmm. Good job. That's probably the right call. Anyway, so, so grandma played as hard as she could, and, she, and, and so he, he, he would always lose. And then one day, it, it happened. One day, he beat her fair and square. And he was so excited, you know, and he was like, Grandma, I want, and if you, for those of you that are familiar with Monopoly, you know that at the end of the game, what happens? The one who wins has everything, owns all of it. So this, he's sitting there looking, going, I own all of the properties. I own all the hotels. I own all the houses. I own all the money. It's all mine. And the grandma said, that's right. Good job, John. And now it all goes back in the box. <laughs> what? It all goes back in the box. Yes, it's all yours, but none of it's yours. We put it back in the box, and we put it back in the closet, and the next people that come along play with all those same things. That's what life is like. And there are so many of us that are living this life acting as if this life is all there is, and we're not prepared for the day that it all goes back in the box. So here's point number two. Point number one, remember, you don't own anything. Point number two... God actually owns everything. And that's an important thing to say because if we say, well, wait a minute, if we own nothing and there's a lot of things, who does own all the things? God owns all of the things. Let me show this to you in the Bible. I think it's in a lot of different places. I will show you a few of them. Psalm chapter 50. The 50th Psalm, starting in verse 7, says this. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. So this is important. God is speaking here, right? He's speaking in the first person. God's the one talking. He says, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. For every, what is it? Animal of the forest is mine. Now, this is, this is why we need a chart. Because what's an animal, right? This is how they ate. This, is, this was their food source. This is how they measured wealth in certain times in, in society. He says, every animal in the forest is mine. You might go, well, are forest animals money? Let's keep reading. Every, every animal in the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Let's look at Job chapter 41, verse 11. This is the guy that had 7,000 sheep, right? Same book. Later on in that book, God speaks to Job. He says this in verse 11 of 41. Who confronted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Let's look at the New Testament. Just make sure this wasn't just an Old Testament thing. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 34, says this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Look at this. Or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? Does God owe anybody anything? He does not. Why? Because anything that anybody has ever given to God, they first got from God. Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God doesn't owe anybody anything because God owns everybody's everything. And God gives us the temporary use of some of his stuff. In this room, there are some of you that get, God has given you a lot of stuff, okay? Some of you in this room, you've got a medium amount of stuff. Some of you in this room, you have a small amount of stuff. But God has given us a temporary usage 
of some amount of stuff. We don't, all, we don't all get the same number of years. We do not have all the same abilities. We do not all have the same possessions. We do not all have the same number of these. But whatever we have, God has given us, and whether it's small, medium, or large, God has given us the use of his stuff. So he has the right to tell us what to do with his stuff. Now, I realize someone could have an objection. I realize someone might go, oh, Mario, that's fine. That's all well and good. But <laughs> isn't there like... Like, isn't there, like, does God really get all the credit for all of my stuff? I mean, isn't it true that I also worked very hard? Like, the stuff that just didn't show up on my front porch, like, just a delivery man just says, here's all your stuff one day. Like, I had to work hard to get my stuff. What about all the stuff that I have provided for myself? I don't get any credit for that. We just say everything's God's. Like, I, I don't get any credit. Like, there are some people in Ocala that have less stuff than me, and the reason they have less stuff than me is I worked harder than them, and I worked smarter than them. So, so don't I get any credit for the stuff that I made? I think that God um, anticipated we might think this way, and so he gives us a verse for this. It's fantastic, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I think the principle applies to what we're talking about right now, but I will give you the context just in case. The context of Deuteronomy chapter 8 is that the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, and Moses is giving them instructions to help them know how they are to behave when they're in the promised land. So they know, like God knows, and I guess Moses, as he's telling the people, realizes they're going to go into this land, and promised land simply means land that had been promised to them, right? Their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham, had this land was promised that he'd have all these descendants, and they'd be in this land, and they're going to plant crops in this land, and they're going to get food that grows out of the ground of this land, and they're going to become rich in this land. And so before they even get there, I want you to notice what, what God says in his word to them. Okay, this is Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 17. As they're about to go in the promised land, he says, You may say to yourself, My power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. Let's pause. Whoa. That sounds very American. It, it is, it's shocking that this is in, in 3,000-year-old Hebrew literature because it sounds very contemporary and very American. You may say to yourself, My power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your fathers as it is today. He promised you this land. He promised this was going to happen. But the, the reason you, when you get there and go, I've done all this. Yeah, you did all this with what? With the ability that he gave you. Even the power to produce wealth is from God. To make this match our, um, you know, our picture here, it's almost like this. We, we take time... And the like, ability and effort that God has given us, the energy that God's given us, and what do we do with it? We trade it for this, and then have the audacity to say, and now it's mine, right? Okay, so this is yours? Yes. Cause, why? Because I, well, I made a really good trade. I did this. I worked really hard. I put a bunch of time into it. I did this. Okay. But who gave you this to start the trade? I mean, I, heard, I remember hearing one time a pastor... I think it was J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina. And he says, he said something like this. In response to someone saying like, well, I'm, but it's my money. I can do what I want with it because I'm the one that worked hard for it and I earned it. And, and I think he phrased it like this. He said, okay, whose air were you breathing the whole time? You did all that work. So, 
In conclusion, okay, if, if all of this is true, if it's true that money is merely the stuff of this life, and if it's true that everything in the world belongs to God, so this is God's, is God's, is God's, these are all God's. If that's true, then we are actually God's money managers. We are his stewards. Every single person in this room is spending someone else's money. That's the idea behind this series. I hope we will get to more next week. For now, let me go ahead and close in prayer. And what I want to do as we close in prayer is I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm just going to ask you a question. And what I would like for you to do is just think about the answer to this question. And then after you think about it, I would ask you to pray about whatever your answer is. And I'm going to be quiet for like 30 seconds or 45 seconds just to give you time to pray about this. But let's start our prayer time by me asking you this and you thinking about it. And then after you think about it, pray to God about it. What would be different about my life if I actually believed this all the time? What would be different about my life if I actually believed this all the time? I'm going to give you some time to think and pray about that, and then we will close. God, we gather together to worship you today. We acknowledge that we worship you for everything. You've done everything that is worthwhile. Every good thing comes from you. You own all of the things. We owe you everything. There is, there is no way to repay you. We have nothing that you didn't first give us. And so we worship you and we declare you and your infinite value this morning. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would give us guidance. I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us discernment so that we may know how it is that we are to handle your things. I pray you'd give us whatever it might be, courage, willpower, to be obedient to you. I pray you'd help us to like get our minds to be thinking in the right direction, to change our categories if we need to, change our lives if that's what we need. But I pray that we would honor you with our stuff and find such joy in it. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins so our life is not trying to even make up for all of our money errors. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for greed. I pray that you would forgive us of that sin. And may we repent of it. And I pray that anyone who's like stuck in that sin this morning, God, I pray you would rescue us from greed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.